I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello! Hello. I want to start with a little fanfare. I've got a, a musical instrument that I've got down from the shelf here. Hang on. First appearance of the year of your legs. It's so nice to see them again. Fanfare for the Common legs, legs yeah. Yeah, fanfare for the common legs, I was about to say. Yeah, Ed is donning shorts. Thank you for the fanfare for my legs. You're welcome. It's just nice I'm slowly to... stunned. So I know we're reasons to be cheerful, but I, I mean, is, is Prime Minister Boris Johnson now an inevitability? Yep. What's been your experience of him? Best experience, I suppose, was, but you know, the trouble is you need to get taken in by this, was getting lost on the Olympic bus on the way to the opening ceremony of the Olympics. And he was quite sort of, you know. Was he the bus captain? Did he start a sing song? No, I think I was sort of teasing him about David Cameron at that point because of the fact that David Cameron had been Prime Minister and. He hadn't, although the joke's on me, about to be on me, really, isn't it? Uh, um, maybe we should get back on the bus. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, so... so that, Let's get something, something more optimistic, Well, honestly. we've got news and it's exciting news. We have news. news. We, do you want to do a little fanfare? Yeah, yeah, Ed's yeah. taking control yeah. of the melodica. You've got to blow in it, into it to get right. a note out of it. Okay. avant-garde so we have news and if you are a fan of music firstly sorry that you've had to sit through me and ed playing the melodica but this is hugely exciting news reasons to be cheerful is recording a special episode at the world's most famous recording studios abbey road I'm going to hide that. You're not I mean, bringing that, that with was, you. But that's actually brilliant, honestly. It, it was, My it was, talent is wasted. 
Well, maybe I'm nothing we should to bring declare except us. my genius. Yeah, isn't this exciting? So it is. We've been um, talking to uh, Universal Music, who've yeah. been wonderful with us, and they yeah. they said to us, "Do you fancy coming and doing an episode yeah. at Abbey Road Studios?" Yeah. And of, of course, we said yes. Um, so apparently, there was a band that used to uh, uh, record there. Is that correct? Yes, a famous band. Yeah, yeah, the Beatles. Uh, that's that's right. Yes. Ask, ask me any question about the Beatles at Abbey Road. Ask, 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 yeah. me, ask me a question. Any question. Um, what was the first year they? Re- what was the first? Nineteen sixty-two. Next question. Um, <laughs> how many times? Did, how many albums did they record there? Um, well, pretty apart from Let It Be, which was their last album, like everything was sort of done-ish at Abbey Road. So they, w- they would occasionally go into other studios, but by and large, every Beatles album, even bits of Let It Be, were tarted up at Abbey Road. What did they used to have for lunch? Um, they would have sandwiches from the canteen. They had a roadie called Mal, who they would dispatch to the canteen to to get sandwiches. Okay, I think you. You've aced yeah. the quiz. Yeah. Um, so we're going to be there. We're going to be doing a live show at Abbey Road. We're hugely excited about this. And you could be there. I'm not talking to you, Ed, because hopefully you will be there. I'm talking to you listening to this. But we're not selling tickets. It's a big reasons to be cheerful bonanza freebie. giveaway freebie. Yeah. So, so how do people find out? So here's what you need to do. You need to go to our website. Uh, which is cheerfulpodcast.com. There's a little box for you to enter your email address, and we're going to do a draw and, uh, and fill Studio 2, which is the famous room wow. at Abbey Road. It's where the Beatles recorded. Well, even I'm impressed. It's it's so exciting. You, you can't get to go in there. As a member of the public, they don't do tours. The date is the 25th of July, and all you've got to do is enter your email address into our website, cheerfulpodcast.com, and then we will draw out a bunch of lucky winners, and you could be there at Abbey Road with us. Exciting. Yeah. Should we talk about this week? Yes. Water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. Who said that? You just did. That was Coleridge. So it's 30 years since we privatised our water industry. This is a unique achievement because literally a unique achievement because it turns out when you do the research that no other country in the world has privatized their water and sewage services in the comprehensive way that we have in other words nobody did it before and nobody has emulated us since and it turns out there are rather good reasons for that because it's been a bonanza for dividends but it's not really been a bonanza for the customer in fact quite the opposite and we're going to be talking about our water industry how we've got into this position how we get out of this position, whether we should get out of this position, and what lessons there are from abroad, including in France, where in Paris, water was being run privately until 2010, and it's now in municipal hands. And in addition to that, we are joined by comedian Stevie Martin, who is bringing with her a tortoise. It's very exciting. Very exciting. What's your reason to be cheerful? It's quite nerdy, but it is nevertheless quite important for the future of the planet. Um, so I hope yours is going to be good too. Um, the UK has effectively seems to have won the right to host the International Climate Conference at the end of 2020. Now, that is, it's known as the COP, Conference of the Parties. Uh, this is going to be COP26. Um, it's really important, this COP, because it's going to be the one that is supposed to update the pledges that were made in Paris. Do you remember there was this big agreement in yes. Paris, the climate change agreement? And basically, the international body, the IPCC, have said that we've got to cut our emissions by about 45% by 2030. If you think about the fact that COP26 is going to be the the update on our Paris pledges for 2030, 
it's really kind of getting on for the last chance to to really get on a trajectory to hit what we need and and the the great sort of irony of or the unfortunate irony of paris is it had very good objectives which was to limit global warming to not just no more than two degrees which had been the previous target but but to make efforts to limit it to one and a half degrees so that's like really good headline ambition but the individual pledges made by different countries add up to three degrees of global warming so we've got to close the gap between three degrees and one and a half degrees now can i talk to you about gigatons Please do. These are kind of quite important figures that you could, that we should have, sort of have in our mind. So basically, the world is heading for something like 55 gigatons of carbon emissions. That is a lot, of, lot of gigatons. A lot of gigatons by 2030. Could be a bit less than that. If we want to have a decent chance of keeping warming to two degrees, we've got to get down to 42 gigatons by 2030. And if we want to have a good chance of keeping it to one and a half degrees, we've got to get to about 35 gigatons. So if you think about the gap between sort of 50 something gigatons and 35. It's a way, it's a ways to go. China is about 11 gigatons. Mm. So can you see, we've mm. got to have a lot of ambition from a lot of countries to do this. But so the re- why is there a reason to be cheerful? It's good that Britain is hosting this, but it is a real opportunity. The fact that we're going to have net zero emissions by 2050, the recent announcement from government, gives us a bit of leadership in this issue. But it's but I can't emphasise to you enough, but, and this is where the Brexit thing comes in, this is a Herculean political and diplomatic effort. I was at the summit in Copenhagen, this was COP15, I think, uh, which was a didn't go well. It scares me a bit that we're going to be spending the next X amount of time thinking about Brexit when this is absolutely massive and consequential for the world. And I really hope the government is going to put all of its diplomatic, political, intellectual sort of welly behind this. Well, that pales into insignificance <laughs> compared to my reason What's to be cheerful. What's your reason to be cheerful? Uh, we had um, a dentist, an NHS dental specialist come in and talk to the parents from my son's nursery. And I found out a good fact. What? So when when you're brushing your teeth of an evening or yeah. a morning, yeah, talk talk me through what you do. Electric toothbrush, two minutes uh, every thirty seconds. It go. It, it how, how much toothpaste are you putting on? Uh, a bit, a bit. Pea size is fine. Yeah. Then you two minutes. Then then what happens? Maybe do a little bit of flossing. A little bit of flossing, but so you've got a mouth at this point. You've got a mouthful of toothpaste. What do you do? Rinse. No. You shouldn't rinse your mouth after brushing your teeth because the toothpaste needs half an hour or so to do its work. That is mind much blow- more significant mind than blowing. mine. Yeah. <laughs> You're listening to Reasons to Be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're delighted to be joined now by Celia Blauel, who is Deputy Mayor of Paris and President of Eau de Paris, uh, which is the municipal water company. It's been publicly run since 2010. Celia, thank you for joining us. And um, can you just tell us a little bit about how Paris has ended up having this uh, publicly owned company and tell us what it was like before that? Well, before that, it was uh, kind of a mix of public-private um, ownership. So it was a kind of a big mess at the end. And uh, in Paris occurred a big debate on two pillars. The, the first one was really political. People uh, start thinking water is a common good and it shouldn't be 
uh, ruled as any other good and, and that we shouldn't have private ownership anymore. And the other debate was about technical financial issues that Paris, after many decades of private ruling, uh, it just occurred that we didn't have any means anymore to control properly uh, the water management. So these two pillars led to um, the idea to get back on 100% public ownership. And what was, what was the mess it had gotten into? Well, it was like many different things, but mainly that uh, we didn't have the knowledge anymore about our networks, the pipes and everything. It's owned by the city, but the city itself couldn't anymore say where the pipes were and how to decide how to make the the main um, decision on that network, which is actually a, a strategic infrastructure for the city. But also we saw, as in other cities um, in France, the price, the cost of water rised up. And, and that was a big problem for the for the municipality. And how has it changed for the the customers or the people of Paris? What can you give us some examples of how the the system being in public ownership has has changed life for them? Well, for them, I think the main change was that at the moment that Eau de Paris was created, we could uh, lower uh, the prices by eight percent directly. Was the idea that. Uh, we weren't paying uh, anything anymore to shareholders, so we were giving back the money to the people of Paris. And since then, the price of drinkable water hasn't been rising up uh, for 10 years. So it's about having a flat uh, price, which is actually one of the conditions to uh, implement the, a real right to water. The price and a stable price is the first condition to um, to have right to water. And I think the second thing, but I'm not sure all the people in Paris realize, is that we are really securing the future. We are now being a big industrial company. Eau de Paris is 900 people working every day on producing, transporting, distributing water to the taps, but also to the uh, more than 1,200 fountains uh, on the uh, in the Paris streets. Ed is very excited about this because you have Spar- you have sparkling water fountains, fizzy water fountains. Yeah, well, we have not not that many, but we have we have ten of them uh, in Paris. The idea is to have something funny to make people think about what is water in their everyday life. So it's a way of saying, look, you have fountains everywhere in Paris. Take that water, it's local, it's carbon low, uh, and it's also less waste for the city. So we want, we want to share our job and also our, our aim to protect nature and environment uh, through these fountains. And what are the benefits of the system being run at the city level rather than nationally? Well, benefits is uh, is just huge, enormous. I think huger than what we expected uh, 10 years ago. It's about being able to... Uh, lead your industrial infrastructure that is a major infrastructure even more if you consider what is going to be water through climate change and scarcity of natural resources so we have at 100 percent the hands on it we have um, all the people engineers workers that are in the company we don't need like external forces to be able to deal with uh, the biggest issue we're going to have these days uh, it's uh, an opportunity for us also to make this industrial world enter uh, the transition we really need to enter, the ecological transition. We are developing renewable energy. We are um, working on uh, fighting the heat island uh, effect uh, in the city. We are really beyond the pipes, uh, becoming an actor of the territory. 
And thirdly, it's a big opportunity to share actually um, decision with the citizens, with the whole community. And it's really interesting. I have right now a board of directors that I have uh, sitting with me, um, elected people from the City Council of Paris, obviously, but also representative of uh, NGOs, user association, experts, researchers that can vote with us, that can be disagreeing with us. And it's really important that a common good is not in the end of something that you don't know what's going on. So it's really a good opportunity to open the governance, I think. Looking ahead, do you see challenges to water supply in Paris with climate change? I mean, is it is it going to be an increasing issue, the making sure there is enough water for people to use? Is that something you're looking ahead long term as, as Eau de Paris? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're really working on that. Uh, we've, we're having like really serious studies with uh, the weather, fr- the French weather broadcast um, company that says that right now it's okay, but I, by 2020, 2050, 2060, we can face really draft um, period heat waves that are going to have really impacts on the water supply. Uh, we are really secure in Paris because we are working on a really original um, water supply system. We have five different suppliers coming from underground resources, but also from rivers. So we are really secure. But in the 50 years to come, I think we really have to think about it, how to be more efficient with our supplier, how to make people awareness raise, but also how to open the debate how are we going to share water between drinkable water, industrial sector, agriculture and sector? This is a big question we have to have now to be able to face the future. So we are really working on that. And you're also president of the European Association of Public Water Operators. Uh, we've seen places like Berlin also shifting back to public ownership. What, what do you think we could learn here in the UK from these examples? Well, I think that all of us that tried the private thing and went back to uh, public things just uh, realized how important it it is to have a right and and really strong political leading of uh, water. Because we always say water is fragile, but water is also a business. You can make a lot of money with business, uh, with the water business. So it needs to have a general interest, uh, interest expressed and, 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 and that leads policies. Uh, and also I think, uh, it's really, it's even more important in this 21st century that really I'm completely convinced climate change, the scarcity of the water resource, the problem we're going to have with quantity, even in Europe, we're starting having some, but also with quality, needs that the public, the public, the general interest leads uh, the, 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 the big policies on water. And that cannot be done in private hands. Celia Blowell, thank you so much uh, for joining us. We are incredibly impressed by what uh, Eau de Paris is doing and uh, we want we, a sparkling we water love fountain the idea of spark, sparkling water <laughs> wow. fountains come on the riverbank I'll offer you some. okay thank you so much my pleasure and we're joined now by Anna Burley who's policy officer at the court party Anna wrote democratic public ownership for the 21st century a report on cooperative ownership and professor David Hall is on the line he's visiting professor at the University of Greenwich 
and he's a specialist in public services and utilities focusing on water and energy. Thanks so much both for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much for inviting us. David, let's start with uh, you. Can you just start uh, just giving us a very basic guide of explaining how water works in the UK and how it differs across England, Scotland and, and Wales? Yeah, the biggest part of the UK obviously is England, and that part is run by nine different large privatised companies, water and sewage companies that were privatised uh, towards the end of the Thatcher government in 1989. Um, in Wales, it's slightly different. Uh, Welsh Water was originally privatised also to commercial companies, but in about 2000, it ended up in the hands of a uh, US energy multinational that didn't want the water company and so a not-for-profit company was constructed. So Water in Wales is run by a not-for-profit company. In Scotland and in Northern Ireland it remains public and so the first decision that the Northern Ireland Assembly took when it was finally elected was no to water privatisation. So just on England for a second, you've yeah. done lots of uh, widely co- quoted research about some of the problems of the water industry. And again, in, in, in the very comprehensible way you just did, just give us some of the headlines on dividends, investment and, and all of that, just so people can get a picture in their minds of, of what, what the record looks like. Yeah, yeah. Well, the the, the economic uh, data is the, is the killing stuff, really. And every single one of the 29 years of privatisation, bar one, the charges we paid for our water in England covered all the costs of operating the water service, all the costs of making the investments, all the costs of paying for the um, interest on debt which started at zero. We gave them these companies with zero debt. And then what happened, after we paid for all of that, the companies then every year borrowed, getting on for £2 billion a year, and then they paid themselves, getting on for £2 billion a year in dividends. As a result of which, after 29 years of privatisation, the owners of the private companies have stashed into their pockets, taken out of the water system, over £50 billion in dividends and left us with a total of £50-odd billion worth of debt and rising. That's the core economic problem. In the meantime, they've also allowed Thames and other rivers to be flooded with sewerage. They've also allowed water to run away in leaks. They've also managed to persuade the so-called independent regulator to agree that it's none of the regulator's business what they've been doing with debt and dividends. In general, they've had a high old time. We estimated it will save every household in England about £100 a year if we take water back into public ownership. That's after taking into account the cost of compensation. Anna, let's turn to you. Um, David's told the sort of facts and figures of this tell us about your research and sort of what, what, where it's kind of where it's taken you on the question of water. Yeah, so I guess sort of the cooperative party, we come from a perspective that um, democracy is a good thing. 
political democracy um, isn't enough and you need economic or industrial democracy. And that's about customers and workers and communities having a say over the decisions that impact their lives. And those don't stop at Whitehall or the Town Hall. They extend to all our public utilities, our transport and so on. So we were looking at um, what that means in industries where there are problems. We came from a starting point around both value, looking at where profit's leaking from a system, but also accountability and, and having a stake in, in the things that impact you. Um, so I guess we were looking at water particularly as, as an area of problem, um, trying to get examples of good practice overseas. And I'm sure that in your development of this, you found that there aren't a huge number of examples to draw on. And you rightly talked to um, Oda Parry. But we also found that, that England is the only fully privatised water yeah. system in the world. Yeah, we went all out uh, and then came up with a load of complex regulatory structures sort of on the back of a fag packet to try and mimic what competition looks like, because you realise that you don't have uh, a market as such that you can have choice within. This is this idea of a natural monopoly. Then. Yeah. Can you ex- explain just just what yeah, that is? Yeah, so you've got um, one set of pipes, one amount of water, um, and so only one organisation can get it to your door um, and, and out the tap, um, trying to create competition there. Either you need to double up your infrastructure or triple up your infrastructure, or you a lump with the fact that actually there is only the one pipe, the product that comes out of your tap, regardless of who sells I mean, it We to don't you. have any choice, do we, about no. whether we... If you're in London, you get it from Thames Water and that... Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think the Tories have introduced a bit of choice around big businesses, but actually it's right. still the same water and the same pipes, but you're just paying for a different call centre. It's not sort of choice. It's fairly sort of nominal choice. It's, it's not a very tangible choice and we are very unusual aren't we in this having this privatized system yeah 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 i mean if you if uh um if you count england as one quarter of the uk then uh that that's it there's 0.25 countries out of nearly 200 in the world do things this way that is extraordinary, and that, isn't it? yeah and that's not because of lack of publicity you know i mean off what the companies have proudly shouted well come and look at us uh, privatization flagship people have literally come from all over the world to look at the way the English and nobody's system adopted operates. our system in the last 30 years since it happened no not one right not wow. one. that's not a great advert <laughs> is not, it? Is no. it? <laughs> the verdict of history is yeah it's not already. it's not great now anna you've got a proposal then for for public ownership of water or maybe cooperative ownership of water in the uk just talk to us about that what we were looking at is different forms of public ownership and you've we kind of came down to three uh three kinds um and we talk about sort of cooperative ownership um state, national ownership and municipal ownership. And that co-op ownership doesn't necessarily mean it's a co-op, but it means that uh, consumers and employees and communities have an ownership stake and have a democratic voice in the way some things run. You've got state ownership so that the wider report looks at energy as well. And we look at actually there are some really big bits of kit that it doesn't make sense to have customers running because no one has that direct responsibility with a national grid or has enough cash to stump up to build a new nuclear power station. Um, and then municipal enterprise, and there's lots of examples of municipal enterprise and energy, for example, which is really but as interesting. as far as the water is concerned, you're advocating a cooperative form of ownership? Uh, yeah, so 
uh, we were looking at um, consumer trusts and employee trusts that you could set up on day one. Um, and I was looking at some examples in New Zealand around energy networks, which have done something similar. So they were restructuring their energy networks in New Zealand and decided that by virtue of paying their bills, customers actually owned the service because they'd been the ones who funded it. So they created, um, I think it's EA Networks and Vector are two co-ops in New Zealand where it's either a they're one member one vote some of them the district councils got some some shares in and they all have a dividend if they overcharge at the end of the year and they um vote on things like how much is reinvested and what the tariffs ought to be and just speaking for jeff for a second i mean jeff's a customer of thames water correct yes i wouldn't say he'd necessarily be an activist owner of the in a cooperative form what what yeah i, d- I don't i don't want to get involved yeah he doesn't want to get involved That's all right. he doesn't but... want the interaction with people apart from anything else yeah so what would it mean for jeff with any co-op there are yeah. members who get involved and members who yeah. don't get involved if jeff is a member of my new yeah. london consumer yeah. trust for water it means that at the end of the year if actually the the bills paid were, were too high then jeff would get Dividend. Uh, are we allowed to run up a load of debt so that we can get a dividend? Like the private no, companies. No, no, you're not allowed to do that. <laughs> no, you don't want to. But is it? Sorry, is it? So you're saying London? Is it? Is it done area by area? It's done area by area. Yeah, like so, so, Thames Co-op Water Co-op would be. Yeah. Well, well, uh, the the current regional boundaries are based yeah. on river basins and yeah. kind of make sense in terms of the way you'd split up geography um, of our water sector. But we were looking at having an employee trust that every employee of the water company is a member of and a consumer trust that every pun who pays a bill is a member of by virtue of economic contribution to the organisation. Um, down the line, we look at changing the corporate form of the water company so that you can't have a for-profit water company. It has to be not-for-profit. Right. And that the guarantors, in Wales, the guarantor is this not-for-profit organisation called Glas Cymru, and it owns wholly the uh, not-for-profit water company, Welsh Water, um, and in a similar way, you'd say we'd have these two trusts would be the guarantors. They'd have a vote and they'd be able to set things like executive pay and what the water bill should be, how much should be reinvested in pipes in Streatham versus pipes yeah. in Stoke Newington. How much should we discount vulnerable customers? What's our social tariff policy? How are we going to reduce water consumption? So, so the, ba- the basic decisions. And why, why would we do it like this rather than just sort of nationalise it like companies used to be? Uh, well, I guess we come from a starting point of a principle of subsidiarity that actually decisions made closer to the people they impact are better decisions. Right. Um, so we've got a whole network of a sort of thousand cooperative councillors and they're looking at how they can take decision making beyond a town hall, for example. Equally, I think for a lot of people, Whitehall would feel as distant as um, sort of the head office of, of Thames Water in some ways. And it's about decision making for the many rather than in a sort of small number of suits um, in London. I was going to actually ask Anna about Welsh water. Did you yeah. look at Welsh water in your work? Yes. Um, so it was sort of the, the people's bid yeah. for um, the Welsh water company when one private owner wanted to sell it. Um, they're really interesting. They're not a co-op, but they do have not democratic structures, but accountable structures where they've got sort of stakeholders um, involved in some of their decision making from across Wales. Uh, they're predominantly debt financed, um, and I think that enables them to get much cheaper financing than the rest of the industry that has these big equity investors that take a lot of cash out of the system in, in reward for their um, handing a little bit over. And they have one of the best credit ratings in the sector, and they're able to how reduce did they manage bills. To be, how did they manage to take it over, Welsh Water? Uh, well, it came down to a couple of s- smart ex-City guys, um, this guy Nigel Annett, and I forget his colleague's name, and right. they put together Glas Cymru and, and a 
bid around that raised, I can't remember the numbers yeah. off the top of my head, but a huge amount of debt capital to be able to right. buy out the, the company. Um, but it's in the public sector. No, it's a company limited by guarantee, right. technically, um, with um, Glascomry, which is its guarantor, um, which is a not-for-profit organisation that has these stakeholders from across right. Wales as part of the decision-making. So it's a that. much more cooperative style. It's on It's on the right road, yeah. yes. They give out customer dividends um, if they you know, get to the end of the year and they've charged too much and, and rather than pocket those right. as shareholder dividends to sort of someone some company in a different country or a shareholder who's who's got all these different investments so they give them back to the customers instead david tell us what your you think about sort of where we are and where we go from here to move from where we are to either public ownership or co-ops the current owners would expect some kind of compensation yeah i was going to come on to that (laughs) this is a bit of a multi-billion pound question isn't it well yeah now not unsurprisingly the current owners think that they would uh, like to be entitled to uh, lots and lots of compensation and uh, my own view and view of others and i know the view of uh, some people in the low party is that they wouldn't be entitled to uh, very much i mean it would be a much lower figure but we are going to have to spend some billions of pounds on doing this or is it spend billions of pounds or is it it's done through bonds that go on the government's debt but basically it becomes a mathematical transaction yeah It becomes a mathematical transaction, yeah. I mean, what I've argued for and a starting point should be what actual shareholders' equity is on the books of the company because that measures the money they have put into these companies. And at the moment, that's about £14.5 That's what, as calculated by Moody's, which is International Credit Rating Agency. So that's what we think is the starting point for discussion. The companies, or some people sort of uh, uh, speaking for the companies, have started with all sorts of imaginative figures, but a recent FT article suggested that in uh, in serious terms they're starting from somewhere like forty four zero billion. I think that is likely to be much more. It's uh, it's not likely to be anywhere near that. And and how much do you see water changing in the? coming decades, either in updating to more modern infrastructure or challenges around climate change and, and the way we consume and deliver it? Yeah, I, I think it's going to have to change a lot. Uh, different parts of the country have different challenges down here. It's about hosepipe bans and whether we're going to have enough water to keep us going through the summer. In the north, you've got um, flooding and big issues around climate change that impact them in a completely different way. Um, there's a lot of exciting stuff you can do around energy from water, well, waste, um, and some water companies are being quite innovative in, in looking at how they exploit that and others aren't. And I think we need to be much clearer about water companies' contribution to decarbonising the UK. I think probably your energy sector might change more drastically or more visibly. Um, and so when we're looking at models for public ownership there, you might want to factor in the fact that a lot of the bits of infrastructure are going to be obsolete in a decade because we're not going to be burning coal, hopefully. And therefore, why do we want to nitpick over ownership over a coal-powered station we're going to decommission in two years when we could be having an exciting conversation about public ownership of modern pieces of kit. I guess the question for both of you, maybe David, starting with you, is for our listeners who think to themselves, well, this all sounds a bit ridiculous that we privatised it, but, you know, it's 100 quid extra on bills. Okay, that's, you know, a significant chunk of change, but is this really the priority? In other words, what's the, to, to mix my metaphors, what's the burning platform here to make people say, well, 
we need to do something about this, as opposed to all of the other issues that we face as a society. David, what's the urgency? What, what, why is this necessary to really act on this? Two or three things, I think, some of which you, you've just uh, you've you just focused on, uh, which, which are exactly the kind of challenges and opportunities that uh, that Anna was talking about in terms of greater environmental controls and uh, responsibility, but greater democratic accountability. I mean, again, there's been surveys done of sort of what do people actually want their water companies to be doing and looking at. The big issue is leakage. Huh? People really want to see uh, leakage being dealt with in a way so that's to stop the waste of huge amounts of water. So we can do all these things and we can regain control. There's this great sort of underlying feeling that's a problem with a lot of current disaffection with politics and a lot of underlying motives, arguably, for votes for the Brexit vote, of people feeling they don't have control of their lives anymore. Uh, that water and these other sectors are areas where we should have democratic control because these structures exist to deliver public objectives. They should be publicly uh, directed. Okay, Anna, what's the burning platform? Um, I think there's a principle that if something's broken, we fix it. Um, And I think that our experiment of privatised water since the late 80s hasn't worked and that every attempt to fix it over successive governments tinkers around the edges of something that at the end of the day doesn't deliver for consumers, for workers, for the environment or for the public purse. And so when you've got something that doesn't deliver on any front, I don't understand the argument against doing something about it. You know, there's uh, polling done a couple of years ago by YouGov says about two thirds of the public want us to do something about water. I think there's now more of a conversation. And what's really exciting about this kind of chat, it doesn't rehearse the old arguments about privatisation. It goes, okay, well, we accept that that doesn't work. What's our alternative model? How do we make it as good as we can possibly make it so that we don't end up with another 40 years of failure, you know, going forward? We have a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy where uh, I, I am installed as a benign leader i will be very hands-off as far as water is is concerned i think i probably won't be getting involved in the co-op as long as i've got a hot and cold running water and a sparkling water fountain actually like as they have in paris <laughs> I, I, I will be fine but if if i was to appoint you because i want to be hands-off if I, I was to appoint you uh joint minister for water what is the first thing you would do day one um, I think day one, you tackle the tax avoidance with the current owners of our system so that we at least start from a place where they're contributing to the national purse. And I'd create democratic organisations in every water company area so that we can start that journey of giving consumers and workers a voice. And David? Yeah, those two, the, the, those two things That's are doing cheating. pretty well. But I'd add to that uh, that we would uh, um, instruct uh, local councils everywhere to set up uh, joint boards, which would become the boards of new public water companies. And what about the fizzy water fountains? Oh, city water. <laughs> fizzy, I, I fizzy, fizzy water, water, water at home. I don't need a fountain for that. <laughs> You'd have to wait for those. And, I mean, the uh, problem is about the Jeffocracy is we're basically at the whim of the sort of supreme ruler. And I'm afraid, I, I, I mean, it will become quite tiresome as he demands his fizzy sort of, do you want it to be fla- flavoured? Is it going to be flavoured fizzy water? That would, would be nice, yeah. yeah. What kind of flavour do you want? <laughs> drop a few berries in there at the filtration plant. Right. Yeah. Uh, Anna Burley, David Hall, thanks so thank much. Thank you. Okay, thank you. So what did you think? 
Look, I know there are people on the other side of the ideological divide to me. On who, the berry flavouring question. On the berry fra- and and on um, privatisation. But I couldn't believe this. It's, it's, it's incredible that we're the only – England, not even the UK, but England is the only country in the world that still has a fully privatised system. And also people come and look at it and think, no, it's not for us. And, and the stuff around dividends, it's just scandalous. So it begs the question, if, if it does work so poorly and nobody yeah. else does it, why not try something different? And also there are lots of sort of crackers, maracas ideas out in the world, aren't there? And nobody seems to have emulated ours. Yeah. I mean, it is pretty, it does tell it's you pretty something. pretty damning. It is pretty, pretty damning. I just said that so I could say crackers, maracas, by the way. <laughs> I don't want you to laugh. It took it took a second go. I mean, I was, I was I'm just it's my desperate desire to please. But some see. 92 episodes in these edisms. I mean, I've, nothing surprises. You're saying me, I'm stale. I'm just saying nothing surprises. I'm not only me. pale but stale. <laughs> um, yeah, I thought that. I mean, I, I it, it's slightly hair raising, and it's because it's sort of quite complicated, and and you know, there's so many other things going on. You don't tend to focus on it, but the numbers are just sort of say, oh, and I've got a f- funny feeling that as, not that funny, as you go forward, as climate change becomes more important, it's, we're going to feel this more and more, you know, we don't quite know what's around the corner in terms of the threat of climate change. So the idea that we can't really control the water, uh, you know, company doesn't quite seem right. I mean, there is this question about the compensation and the bondholders and all that. But but the basic argument, as I understand it, is, yes, it would put a bit more on the public debt, but essentially you're converting a stream of income that the privatised companies will be getting and you're sort of bringing it back to government. So it's sort of in a sense, you know, it's, it's like a financial transaction which does kind of, you know, notionally cost government, but actually in the long run – you're presumably just getting that you're going to get the stream of income back. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, and get the stream of berry flavoured sparkling water. Reasons to be cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f? are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If you've got thoughts on what you've heard on Crackers Maracas or anything <laughs> else, the water uh, situation, uh, then uh, please do email us, readers at cheerfulpodcast.com, or you can find us on Twitter and uh, Instagram at cheerfulpodcast or facebook.com forward slash reasons to be cheerful podcast. You can also email about uh, the book club but at book club at cheerfulpodcast.com. I have news. Pray I have tell. news from across the world from Ruby Ram. Hi, Ed and Jeff. I'm an Australian listener who's never lived in the UK, currently up to episode 48. Well, you've got a lot of pleasure in front of you, Ruby. There are, of course, many differences between the UK and Australia. Uh, however, the key difference I would like to highlight is how we have a few make your sandwich shops, even one that's a franchise. What? There's been one in the Brisbane CBD Australia for as long as I can remember. What is CBD? Central Business District. GCSE Geography. Walled up. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Uh, for as long as I can remember. I finally made a trip to it. It's a bit far away from my workplace, which is literally the only thing I have against it. It's perfectly clean with utensils for each container of foodstuffs. You can make sandwiches, pizzas, or salads. I've attached a picture, but I'm sure Jeff won't believe me. In addition, my university has a make-your-own-sandwich place. There are actually two, but one's closed for renovations, which I think is just renovations, not hygiene. As a picky vegetarian with strong opinions on mayo and tomatoes, I think Jeff has been very unfair in his <laughs> criticism, Ed. You should follow your dreams. I am also a picky vegetarian with strong opinions on mayonnaise. And did you say, say tomatoes for a reason? No. You know, you said tomatoes. I didn't know that. That's weird. That is weird. Because I say tomato. Spooky. Anyway, you've been sandwich shaming me. Ruby's Ruby's made clear. She wants me to come. She wants us to come to Australia. She says they're fans of me in Australia. Sure, one of my friends stared blankly at me while I was spru- <laughs> while I was spruiking the podcast. I think that must be an Australian expression. But another friend very fervently said, "Oh my god, I love Ed Miliband." This this make your own sandwich thing refuses to die. I'm pretty exactly sure exactly had- refuses to I'm die. I'm pretty sure we've had. Other Unlike e- water privatization, I'm pretty sure we've had other email from uh, people in Australia who said we used to have one near us and it closed down because it was such a terrible business model look i'll tell you what i'll make a deal i will stop trying to launch a military coup against the jeffocracy if you embrace make your own sandwich can i be make your own sandwich neutral so i neither endorse it uh but nor will i be a detractor it would be an improvement on where you are at the moment okay this was a nice email to receive this came from thomas ware who said uh dear ed and jeff Hi, guys. Um, I really enjoyed listening to the first episode of Cheerful Book Club. Uh, We will have news about the next episode before the end of this podcast episode. Uh, You'll have another one of those coming your way very soon. Uh, He says, I was really moved by hearing Ed talk about his failure, in inverted commas, to win the 2015 general election. I have to say I feel you are being much too hard on yourself here. Uh, There are many political points... Uh, which you know better than I about how David Cameron and the Tories manipulated the electorate to scoop up more votes, trashing the Lib Dems record in government, promising another referendum to claim UKIP votes and threatening people with the spectre of a salmon Miliband tail wagging the dog scenario. Yeah, okay, so I Can wouldn't... you get to the rest of the email? <laughs> says, I wouldn't say that Labour lost the argument, simply that the electoral maths didn't work in your favour. And also, and I can't stress this enough, you may have lost the war, but you have won the peace. Oh. Ed Miliband wouldn't have treated us like this and all that. Chaos with Ed Miliband is, is what he's alluding to here, isn't he? Oh. Uh, uh, 
However, more importantly, I believe you should reflect more seriously on what Elizabeth Day said about failure being the crucible for growth and success in the future. If you had become Prime Minister, you would not have started the Reasons to be Cheerful podcast. And I'm not just being glib. I think that you're having a serious impact on a whole generation of young That's really kind. Uh, liberal and left-wing listeners. The podcast and others like it will be the intellectual engine of the next wave of progressive government. He also says, uh, Ed, you consider yourself a serious success and you are still a relatively young politician. Oh, that is such a nice email, isn't it? Was it? A really nice, yeah. Really nice email. If anybody wants to send in anything for my self-esteem, uh, you know, probably a bit more needed this side of the desk than on Ed's side. <laughs> I'm not sure that's true. We're competing. Right. So this is this follows a dinner I was at last night in Manchester for my friend Lucy Powell MP. And it comes from Abigail White or Abby White, who's Director of Social Sciences and Humanities at Cornell Co-op College. Hi, I met Ed at the Manchester CLP dinner tonight, and I think he wanted to know a bit more about the nominated assembly in 1653 that we discussed. So could you pass this on? So basically we were talking about sort of deliberative assemblies and all that. And Abby, who knows a bit of history, um, quite a lot of history, actually, talked about the fact that the nominated assembly, also known as the bare bones parliament, she explains it thus. Essentially, after the execution of King Charles, the long parliament refused to put themselves up for re-election and wanting to continue without election, a bit like the Jeffocracy, and without any checks or balances on their power. Cromwell, that's Oliver, ended up dissolving them in a fiery speech as a result of this, he then formed a plan with a fifth monarchist, Thomas Harrison, to select 140 men from England, Wales, Scotland and Ireland. And it is believed that a consultation took place where congregational churches could nominate representatives to the assembly. Now, this I don't think it was entirely successful, this deliberative assembly, but it made me think of sortition and all that. It was successful for a while, says Abby, but ultimately failed when it was perceived that a radical sect within the assembly were challenging the power of the gentry. But I think it's interesting because I I did some further Googling to find out. And during its brief life, the Assembly passed 26 ordinances dealing with a wide range of administrative, financial and social matters. These included the requirement that all marriages be performed not by the clergy, by a justice of the peace, the compulsory civil registration of births, marriages and deaths within each parish, greater protection for lunatics and their estates and provision for the relief of impoverished debtors and prisoners. So I think it was sort of, it may have been a bit more like a parliament, really. But anyway, look, it wasn't exactly a citizens' assembly, but it was sort of something like that, it, just in terms of who was there. Um, about a third of the delegates were drawn from the traditional ruling elites. Most others were minor gentry and landowners. But anyway, I thought it was really interesting because it does make me think that often when we think about things that are happening at the moment, we never really go back into the history. And... And I was actually listening to David Ronsonman's podcast today, Talking Politics, which is such an excellent um, podcast. And he was saying, actually, the social events of hundreds of years ago look completely different, or the social history, but the political history often often bear similarities. And I thought that was a rather interesting way of putting it. Nothing new under the sun. Email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast. And here to present us with some ideas, which could be reasons to be cheerful, in the Jeffocracy comedian Stevie Martin. Hello. Hello. We just unearthed a fantastic... I mean, already you're a favourite guest, because for reasons we'll go into in a minute, it's something that you've brought with you. Mm. But before that, you, you, you were named after the comedian Steve Martin. Yeah, I mean, my parents are quite cagey about it still. 
but they have now relented that it's too close for them not to have noticed. Mm-hmm. Like, we've got so many DVDs. Got, and I grew up watching, like, his Saturday Night Live specials. Wow, and then she said it's nominative determinism because you, you went on to become a comedian. I did, yeah. With Stevie Martin. I know. Yeah. Not I think I ever knew what nominative determinism was until now. Well, there you go. I learn you something every day from you. Um, so, so tell us the other, th- the other, the reason you're our favourite guest okay. is currently sitting in in my kitchen. Uh, yes, I brought. I had to bring my, uh, <laughs> had to bring my uh, tortoise, Dr. Alison Parker, um, to the podcast because uh, I was at home with my family and my sister was looking after her. Hang on, your tortoise has a, a doctorate. Yeah, uh, yes, yes, she does in kale. She's very nice. I've spent a bit of time with her, I can tell. Well, listen. <laughs> you, you are thinking about pets at the moment. Yeah, I, she's quite impassive, I would say. Oh, absolutely, yeah. If you oh, want she doesn't give much away. Oh, no, no, no. And that continues. So, I've, yeah, I've had three years and she's not offered me anything. She's not opened up to you? No. She's got an Instagram, um, at two underscore torts, which she shares with her sister, Gary Tortellini, which <laughs> is a tortoise owned by my sister. Why does Gary have a different surname? Because... That's very interesting um, because, uh, well, they were in a, they were in a, they they grew up in foster care and right, they have right. different mothers. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. But um, you, you, the, the tortoise can live to typically one hundred and twenty years. Twenty, I think, is the aim. Yeah. So you have to make provision for that in a will, then. Yeah. Well, I, or I have to live to one hundred and twenty. Mm, I think I'm go for the latter. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's yeah. the more realistic option. Well, thank you for bringing her along. Absolutely today, fine. Yeah, Doctor Allison, it's it's been the most exciting thing that we've has ever Definitely. happened. <laughs> so definitely. what a life you've had yeah. Yeah. so you've also brought some ideas with you yes i have yeah so what's the first one all wasps should wear trousers it should be mandatory mandatory yeah uh because and here's for why i'm quite afraid of wasps i think wasps are quite aggressive um so there's something about them uh feeding off like artificial sugar so they go a bit high and a bit like whatever i think if they're wearing trousers that would solve the fear of the sting because they've got trousers on, so they can't sting through the trousers. Yes. Um, I don't know if I have to explain that. Um, and then also, I don't think I'd be frightened of something that was wearing little trousers. <laughs> and I don't think they would ruin picnics, because if something with little trousers wanted to, like, share my sandwich or something, I'd be like, yeah, sure, have some. And then they just fly off, you know? Do you not get stung whilst you're putting the little trousers onto the wasp? No, because the wasps want to wear the trousers. Okay, so they're okay. quite excited. And bees... If you're going to ask why don't bees wear trousers, I think because bees they need to be pollinating, whereas wasps don't even pollinate. Bees anything. understand that with great power comes great responsibility when Absolutely. it comes to stinging. Or bees can wear skirts. <laughs> they can be, you know, or they can like Winnie the Pooh it up. Have you ever been stung by a bee or a wasp bed? Not that I remember. Really? I've never been stung by a bee or a wasp, and I'm, I, you know, as I, as I get older, I worry that I'm going to be one of these people who eventually does get stung yeah. and then dies within oh God. 45 seconds. Oh, because you'll be allergic yes. and you didn't know. Yeah, yes. Yeah. I did a handstand on a wasp and it stung me, um, and I'm not allergic. I mean, you had it coming to you. Yes, I did, yeah. yeah. It was a good handstand as well. <laughs> I smashed it. So what do you think, Ed? Are we, are we uh, having this? Yeah, I mean, I think what's, what's, what's so good about Stevie is basically, for people who don't know, Stevie's sister Gina was on was on the pro- program talking about her success in the upskirting law. She changed the law, yeah. Yeah, and so you're trying to change the law too. I'm just trying, and, you know, to, it's I'm trying like, to follow. You're just um, like a you're like a, such a dynamic a duo. House, yeah. it's, it's all about the big issues in your yeah. family. Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Trousers for wasps. Yes. We're having it. Oh, all right. What a joy. What's next? I do think we should just cancel all social media. We should just stop it now. I'm sure other people have said this, but. I'm, I mean, I don't really have any more to add. I just think, 
I think if we if there was something that was like, and it's ending now and no one could do anything about it, I think we'd all be so much happier. So so I, I've been thinking a lot about how miserable social media does or doesn't make me. Mm. And the conclusion I've come to is it make, I think it makes me miserable and stressed. Yes. But if I took myself off it, then what if somebody was going to write a nice thing about me? I might miss it. Yeah. <laughs> net, <laughs> net, <laughs> net, but net, you'd be better off. Can the genie go back in the bottle, though? Mm, I don't know. Is, is your show this year about social media? It's sort of, Yeah, it's basically about how there's too much hot content everywhere. I mean, you're just like... You just want it all. You just want it. And What's I'm distracted. Hot content. Hot content th- th- this podcast. Um, oh, spicy takes. Spicy takes, hot takes. Basically anything that you're like, oh, actually, I'm just going to show you this. Viral videos. Viral videos is one. Basically, I, I spend my whole day being like, oh, actually, have you seen this video? I think, oh, I've just got to make sure they've got... And yeah. you just, I can't focus on anything for more than about sort of 10 minutes. What about like a meat-free Monday? Like a sort of, you know... Okay, yeah, well, I, know, I can compromise. Social media Twitter free, free Tuesday yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. In, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm down for that. Okay. Also, it would be good to have an Instagram-free Sunday, so you just don't get loads of people like taking pictures of their brunch and like going out with their friends. And I feel like I've got no friends, and I'm boring for not having brunch. I've never taken a picture of my brunch. You had one, one more thing, Stevie. Two for two. Yeah, I don't like the concept of dress codes. I find that also totally agree with. They're this. just they make they they I cause so many suits. problems. Yeah, I, like my boyfriend can't stand wearing wearing suits, and he gets really stressed about it. And and there's no reason to. Um, but like also we are kind of inbuilt to think of people differently depending on how they're dressing as well. So if we got rid of dress codes and you could just turn up in whatever you wanted, then we'd eradicate, I think, a load of problems. Um, and also that is sort of the way society's going, isn't it? Yeah, because like trainers are quite cool now. So I basically now I think as I've reached a certain age, I often go into the House of Commons wearing a suit and my trainers very jerry seinfeld what, well no yeah. actually i have a phrase for it when people say say to him what you're doing i say it's the peter bone look because peter bone is a conservative mp and i first saw him doing this it's so taken off obviously it's taken off but people look at me as if i'm slightly slightly weird it's not very it's kind of slightly i don't go into did the house they of look commons. at you like that before you were doing the trainer thing? no uh <laughs> i don't go into the house of commons chamber mm-hmm. with the trainers but anyway mm. you, is there a dress code in that chamber well, there it was some like dispute it, the it? other day about ties because Burkow said he wasn't insistent on ties, but I do wear a tie. Could you go in topless on a hot day? I think what? probably not. Right. Were some people up in arms about the lack of tie? I think some people thought it wasn't quite right. Not yeah, to have ties. it's quite difficult, isn't it? I think. I, I would prefer not to have a tie. Yeah, absolutely, because there's no real, really, there's no reason. And also it would, I think as well, like a lot of class things, a lot of like uh, race things, a lot of like problems would be right if, if people could just wear whatever. They, and it, and you wouldn't ever judge anyone if they but came it, for a job interview. Well, it's really them. odd though, because it's, you know, for for kids, I, I happened to have chair a debate in the scout, among the scouts in my constituency the other day about whether they should have school uniform or not. Oh, great. I sort of pretended to be the speaker and did sort of order, order, and they debated it. And they were basically against school uniform. Yeah, great. I sort of agree. But the parents were in favour. But no, it was, it was like the great leveller. Oh, I see what you mean. But yeah. Yeah. they're not like all looking at your them. trainers and all that. They don't have them. So you're not for school uniforms. Well, I've got mixed feelings. So on one hand, I think if you're a poor kid... Yeah, exactly. You know, if you go in in a school uniform, you're not sort of dressing any differently and you can't be picked on for that. But at the same time, there's something about the... Uniformity. Literal uniformity. Maybe it's like uh, when you're a kid, uniform is fine. But also there's lots of stories about kids who can't afford the school uniform as well. There's there's kids at at my school that sort of wore like 
as close as they yeah, could. Yeah, and it was like, yeah. oh god. But I suppose even that is, but if maybe there wasn't a uniform, it would have been the bullying would have been even worse. Maybe, but like maybe then when you're an adult. From like 18 onwards, you can wear whatever you like. So you'd be happy with pyjamas at a funeral? Pyjamas at a funeral? I'd love it. Absolutely. Spider-Man costume in the comments. <laughs> if you were like, I'm going to get this bill through. Is that you daring me to wear a Spider-Man you costume? You might get mistaken for a father for justice. <laughs> yeah. I don't see so much of them anymore. <laughs> they no. don't, do. Well, what's the other superhero I could be? Wonder Woman. If, if you, get <gasps> if you to be... did Wonder Woman, that would be excellent. <laughs> really great. Surely you want to be a Ninja Turtle. Oh, that's true. No, because then me and Alison would not get on. Do you not think? No, because I'd be the alpha and she'd be the beta. Uh, and there'd be a lot of issues. Yeah. I'm trying to think if there have any, been any sort of famous tortoises. Apart from the... No, not... Ri- oh, yes. SEO Trot. That's not a famous tortoise, but you know the Roald Dahl. No, the Roald no. Dahl story, SEO Trot. No. It's the greatest. It's an amazing film with Dustin Hoffman as well. I mean, I'm just, just watching the trailer for it now. <laughs> no, I'm just finding out about the Blue Peter tortoise. I think that is the first famous right. tortoise, oh, of course, isn't it? Yeah, oh, yeah. of course. What's it called? Well, Are I he think he's died, actually. Oh, it's called okay. George. Right. Um, oh, he's sweet. Yeah, he is sweet. He is sweet. You'd recommend a tortoise as a pet, basically. Yeah, but I think you have to look after it more than people think. So people, you can't just put it in a box in the garden. Like, Alison has a little run in our house and a little UV. And you can't line. expect sort of... Um, Love. Love. No, you can't expect love. It, uh, they they love you in a tortoise way, which is not a human way. Yeah. Well, Stevie, we've loved having you on in a tortoise way. I've loved being on in a tortoise way. Thank you. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Ooh, we're in the outro. We are in the outro. I should remind you that this week... Come on, Ed. First first rule of show business, always leave them wanted more. Or less, in this case. <laughs> uh, we should remind you that this week we are dropping uh, the second sort of bonus pilot beta episode of the Cheerful Book Club. And we're delighted to say we're joined by the brilliant Rennie Edo Lodge, who wrote the, uh, the book that became a phenomenon. Why well, I'm no longer talking to white people about race and that will pop up in your feed this week do let us know what you think you can email us uh, bookclub at cheerfulpodcast.com I've had an idea for a, for another spin-off podcast yeah so I took my son to Ikea this week yeah and uh, I was going to go to the, to the little restaurant there and have veggie pretend meatballs and mashed potato because it was Swedish midsummer and I wanted to celebrate only they got a sign up uh, dated the 10th of May, saying we are unable to serve mashed potatoes at the moment. Uh, however, we have chips as an alternative. Already, this is a mystery, right? I'm then like wandering around IKEA. I go to the market hall bit at the end, and they've got loads of potato mashers. What's going on, Ed? It's a mystery. Why don't we launch a serial-style solving the mystery podcast about why they can't make mashed potatoes at IKEA anymore? You're wrapped. I can see from your face that you are absolutely wrapped. You are cooking with gas today. <laughs> I'm on fire. You yeah. are on fire. Yeah. What would we call it? Hmm. The Mash Report. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Um, we I should. I get the big box for. We right. should. Uh, we should thank our guest this week. We should thank our guest. I'd like to thank Celia Blauel, President of Udvari, and also Professor David Hall and Annabelle. And our thanks to comedian Stevie Martin. Emma Corsham produces our podcast with research and backup by Joel Pierce and Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made the idents head seed, composed the music, and the artwork was designed by Emily Powell. He's been crackers. He's been miraculous. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. <laughs>